Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy podcast. This is episode 20, um, the Cold War. And uh, today uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Uh, joining me today, my fellow colleagues from the Strategy, Depart Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College. First, Dr. Michael Aaron Dennis, welcome. And <laughs> next, uh, Commander Dan Post, military professor. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. All right, outstanding. Um, so I thought we would uh, start out the conversation today since, since both of you deal in, in various aspects of uh, technology and, and, and nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the, the, the nuclear question uh, overall is the entire Cold War. And it is much as the Cold War, we talk about ideology and the struggle between communism and capitalism it's, it's, I guess, charged, exacerbated by this, this question of, of nuclear weapons. And we're the first to use nuclear weapons in 1945, but then very quickly, the Soviets are able to test a bomb um, and demonstrate capability, followed uh, a few years later by the Chinese. So it puts the Cold War in this new context. So um, nuclear diplomacy. It's kind of where I want to start, and we'll start the conversation with you, Michael. What does this do to, to the Cold War? And, and what is this, how does this change the rational calculus of, of the conversation? You want to take? <laughs> I mean, either way. <laughs> what, what it wasn't you? supposed to be a curveball. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, Dan, actually, this is a specialty. So, but I would just point out that, you know, we have studied other examples of so-called great power competition in this course, but nobody had a nuclear weapon. And, and while first-generation fission bombs would not end the world, they would make things ugly, it is the thermonuclear revolution that begins in 1954 that changes this calculus rather dramatically. When weapons move from being simply big fire bombs, which is awful and has radiation effects and fallout and all like particular fuses at ground burst, it is, you know, as Hans Bethe famously pointed out, the hydrogen bomb, thermonuclear weapons, which is the entirety of our arsenal. Uh, they are, as he said, instruments of genocide. We, it takes a while to convince American policymakers that, in fact, the sheer scale of death from their use, the employment of such weapons. For example, the very first casualty reports about a, our planned attack on the Soviet Union. Uh, I think it's the Harmon Report, Harmon Committee, is roughly 77 million people. Now, yes, they're Soviets and they're the ostensible enemy, but 77 million people. Nazis only managed to kill 6 million Jews with effort. Um, and more in slit trenches. More in slit trenches than bullets. But um, think about it. 77 million people in a stroke. And casualties would be just as great upon the United States were a successful Soviet strike to take place, which is why we engaged and still do in a first strike. That is our goal has always been to incapacitate an enemy. So they may not be able to act on the homeland. And uh, that is so, but as you pointed out, you've used the curious phrase nuclear diplomacy. And that's something that really was coined by Gar Alperwitz, actually he called it atomic diplomacy in his book, about the use of the bombs against Japan. And there he said we were signaling the Soviet Union, and that's, so it was really Moscow, but displaced on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And scholars have debated this point, and as Martin Sherwin pointed out in what is still one of the best books on this, A World Destroyed, uh, yes, certainly the 
there was an element of signaling to the use of the weapons against the bombs against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On the other hand, uh, not to return to that old controversy, but there was very little decision-making involved in the use of the bombs against Japan. The Manhattan Project had been one about the production and use of a nuclear weapon. It would have required much more effort to not bomb Japan with a nuke than it did to go along and do that. We may be appalled by that, uh, by our own modern standards, but we often forget that the summer of 45, Americans were just desperate to end the war in, in the Pacific. The war in Europe was finally over. People, those of you who are familiar with the uh, Band of Brothers series on HBO know that at the end, they're all getting ready to be shipped out to the Pacific. My mother's own uncle Leon was in the West Pack. He didn't certainly want to participate in any invasion of Japan should such a thing take place. But the alternatives were never invasion or that, and we, we don't want to get into that discussion. I would just point out that one of our colleagues, Nick Sarantakis, recent research shows that an invasion of Japan would have been very difficult, given that we had destroyed the major port of embarkation in Manila for such a, an invasion. So it would be difficult for the United States to do that. Uh, we had other strategies, Operation Starvation, and let us not forget the firebombing, which was so effective. So that's where atomic diplomacy comes from. Are we engaging in that during the Cold War? Well. In one sense, once the Soviets get a weapon, we're, we don't understand what they have, actually. That is, insofar as that our decision not to use nuclear weapons in Korea is such, uh, it is based somewhat on a fear of a Soviet retaliation, but they don't have, I mean, they're like us. Our nuclear weapons are in their infancy. And I would just note that our nuclear weapon infrastructure from the Second World War has to be rebuilt in the early Cold War so that we will have fissile materials and people to make the bombs. The cohort that made the first bombs leaves Los Alamos and is gone. So, I mean, you know, there's a great line and not great line, but a great point made in several books. But when Truman learns the size of the American nuclear arsenal in like 47 or 48, you know, it's like not seven or nine plutonium cores. That's it. They're not bombs. They're just separated hemispheres of fissile material. I don't want to go into that closet, but um, think about it. Uh, the industrial infrastructure to build these weapons is enormous. Mm. I mean, we only enter the period of so-called nuclear plenty under Eisenhower because of decisions Truman makes to rebuild the production facilities at Oak Ridge and at Hanford and at a dozen other places throughout the United States. Nuclear weapons require a vast infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They require immense industrial skills. And, you know, a lot of nuclear diplomacy, one could argue, is actually domestic, building the coalitions. I mean, there's a reason why New Mexico likes nuclear weapons, because Los Alamos is there, Sandia is there. Uh, these are the sites where we maintain our thermonuclear presence, so to speak. Mm. Dan, please. Yeah, sure. I I won't add much because I want to get to some other questions, but I'll say yes. Like, what did nuclear weapons do to the Cold War? And I think I don't think you can think about the Cold War without thinking about the key moments in changes to nuclear technology and the shifting balances of nuclear uh, weaponry between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and how those changes and shifts and developments impacted the ways that the leadership of those countries and, and the Soviet Union and, and NATO and also the United States, where they pushed and when they pushed and when they stood firm and how they how they conducted their diplomacy. So the, the, the nuclear diplomacy, it, it was always in the background. And there are times and different administrations in the United States handled this differently, different leaders in, in the Soviet Union handled this differently, but they came to the, their roles with at various times different capabilities in their back pocket and different understandings of those capabilities and different opinions because mm. they're really opinions no one really right. knows of what you could do with that new technology or capability and sometimes Khrushchev at times pushed in places because he thought I can do this now because I have nuclear weapons right. I wouldn't have been able to do this before the United States 
also at times stands firm or pushes in other places because of I, I have a superiority that I think. So it it affected the calculations. It sort of is the, it's the backdrop of the, the the shifting perceptions of who's got the advantage and when. And I think that's one way fundamentally that it affected the, the Cold War and shaped the Cold War. Um, we talk a lot about the um, concept from Thucydides of fear, honor, and interests. And you know, um, kind of what you said, and then you as well, but like, you know, that nuclear weapons are somewhat of a, they're a threat, but that fear really comes home during uh, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, right? That, that, that becomes this kind of red line where President Kennedy then does threaten war and an invasion to not have nuclear weapons on the 90 miles off of, uh, off of Florida. But, um, but I would just say, I mean, one of the things about the Cuban Missile Crisis, besides the standard trope that, you know, both leaders look into the abyss and realize they have to pull back, is that at the time, we were unaware of so much. So, for example, that the weapons were already in Cuba and that the arming sequences were there. Uh, in other words, they didn't have to, have to go back to Moscow to get permission. This is a... And when McNamara, who convened all these conferences after the end of the Cold War to find out more about it, you know, we have many reasons to criticize McNamara and all related to Vietnam, but he is, uh, he is appalled at how close people came. And by the way, yes, fear, honor, and interest matter, but I would argue it is in fact the Clausewitzian trinity that really matters. Uh, reason, passion, and chance. I, I would, you know, because it is, look, we get through the Cold War without using nukes largely because of chance. Uh, you know, one could make an argument that it, the fear, honor, and interests matter in the Cuban Missile Crisis since uh, the conditions for the Soviet withdrawal from the missiles from Cuba and the related warheads is we will withdraw our Jupiters uh, from from yeah. Turkey, yeah. and that is, and the deal is, you can't make that public mm. because, in a sense, one could argue a fear on honor. Mm. Kennedy does not wish to be diminished yeah. in the public eyes, the virile young president. But uh, I would just point out that for the United States, why is this a? Why can he do this? It's because we're building Polaris, mm. and we're going to have a platform that the Soviets will not have. And we have invested billions in this. And it is not, and it is a very different technology. Uh, submarines are not detectable, and we hope they are still not. And we are going, and you know, the first generation Polaris boats, one is told to sail into the Black Sea and surface and go to whatever Istanbul, and the troops are told, you know, the sailors are told, you go on town and you tell them where you're from. Uh, just so they, uh, the Russians will know, hey, yeah, the Jupiters are gone, but guess what? Polaris is here. Now, Polaris was notoriously, yeah, yeah, but it's also, you know, there's a difference between counter value, which is we kill your civilians and your cities, and there is counter force where we try to destroy your military and then your civilians. And uh, all Polaris was was counter value. We're going to hold your cities hostage. So, should you attack the United States, guess what? You know, a couple of, we built how many Polaris boats? A sizable number. I think 25 or Yeah, something. and by the second generation. Don't quote me on that one. <laughs> yeah, but they're, well, our students it, may on their It wasn't a trivial number. It was, no, no, it was, yeah, and it was an expensive number. And by the way, we do it in a very short period of time. As something, for example, as any of you who watch football games in New England know, we cannot do anymore since they're always advertising for welders and pipe fitters at the two major submarine manufacturing plants. <laughs> That are located here. <laughs> um, so just keep that in mind. Uh, fear, honor, and interest, yes. But also, I've got a new technological capability. There is though, something important that I emphasized in my lecture today. One should not confuse a capability with a strategy. Mm -hmm. right. And it is still unclear nuclear diplomacy. To what question are nuclear weapons the answer? I really, I hope one of our students or listeners can one day tell me. Because other than stopping you, I mean, from the unlikely event that the United States will be invaded, 
would truly unlikely. Uh, what are we doing with them? I mean, Dan pointed out a really important point, which is that they seem to provide leaders with uh, more steel uh, in their backbone under certain conditions. But the real question I would push back on that is, yes, they provide you with more, potentially more leverage. But now in the present, and even in the later Cold War, when it becomes clear that the use of these weapons will fundamentally alter the climate and kill more people, what is their actual value? I mean, uh, by the way, they're a great jobs program, and I certainly am not against New Mexico <laughs> and against the and and they're demon unmanufacturing. That is, there's a place in Amarillo called Pantex where we take apart nuclear weapons. It's a very sophisticated operation. It requires an immense amount of skilled labor. It's also a really scary place to go visit. And um, so, just keep that in mind. I mean, the fundamental question is. What are they good for? Yeah, and that, that that's a fundamental question throughout the Cold War, and and I think the Cuban Missile Crisis is almost the culmination of a of a finally accepting that they the leaders at the time that did not know the answer to that question. You know, they, they going in. So you could, if you look at the timing, uh, the Soviets develop a hydrogen capability themselves, the thermonuclear bomb, and then they start pushing harder in Berlin. They do, and that leads to the Cuban Missile Crisis is all kind of all related. And afterwards, both sides realize, wait a minute, that we have this capability. It still didn't help us. We still didn't gain yeah. these advantages that we wanted. It encouraged them or maybe gave them the confidence to push for those things. Mm. And they also may have contributed to them not getting out of control, mm. but they still failed to achieve those coercive goals and those things that they were trying to do. And, and part of the realization for both sides after the Cuban Missile Crisis is, we really need to think about what these are good for, like Michael was saying. It, it, it's almost like it's the, the golden tool that you can't use, right? Because you'll, you know, it'll break. Yeah. yeah, but so, well, I guess to, to, to pull on this, this thread, because it's kind of interesting, in, in Clausewitz, he posits this concept of war by algebra, which war by algebra, which is kind of a straw man for him, like something you can't really attain. But he also talks about total war. Do you think- or absolute war. Uh, absolute, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you. Absolute war. Um, do you think that is one of our the problems in in dealing with the concept of, of strategy for nuclear weapons because it, it is just so um, difficult to wrap your mind around and, and, and you know millions of casualties and, and when, how would you even employ these and and then what's left after it is, is that why it's so difficult for us to come up with a effective strategy in terms of what these things do and what they well the short answer and this is is simply all nuclear strategy is fiction, but the patina of science to which we have attached to it is really profound and gives it an authority, which it kind what of- What do you mean by- well, That is the notion that we can attach numbers. In other words- The, the, one, the, war, the thinking of war by algebra right. has been brought to the nuclear world, or yeah. especially in the, in the cold, during the Cold War with the systems analysis programs and mm. um, the RAND type of studies where- Things were, you know, everything came down to modeling and computers and game theory. There, there was a very big, and in, in the book you recommended to me a while back, uh, How Reason Lost Its Mind, is about this, where you get almost ultra scientific and you you lose the humanity of the whole thing. And mm -hmm. now you're just talking about numbers and you have actual educated leaders who, with real human you know, experience, who say it's a victory if they lose 66 million people and you only lose 57 million you have these are being yeah. said by people and not yeah. everybody is turned away there's it's almost like a detachment from and it does make sound strategy difficult mm -hmm. what you know Clausewitz would you know absolute war was that was was something we would never actually quite get to in the rea in reality and if you did, what would it be for? Because as Clausewitz would say, it's for some political purposes. The whole reason right. you're fighting war. Well, what's left after this? Your capital is a smoke. You know, so you have so, but you did have people taking the, the patent of science that he's talking about is like, oh, we can figure, we can calculate winners and losers here yeah. with the right models and the right inputs. Um, that's you know, that's that's a kind of a not not great strategy always, right? Well, but there's. A it, it, and the notion of simulation and of modeling, all these things are ways of taking the, something out of the world, right? And simplifying it greatly. And 
all these simplifications, there is a problem. I mean, it is, take climate change even now, we have very complicated models of it, but we are constantly discovering that our models are underestimating the rate of change because we cannot incorporate all the variables. The analog world is much messier than the digital. We live in an analog world, whether we like it or not. And we wish to replace it sometimes. I mean, this is the dream of the metaverse and where I apparently don't have legs and other bizarre things, but I would just keep it. I mean, one thing I would say just as a, you mentioned systems analysis and our colleague Anand Toprani and I have worked on this. One thing about systems analysis is that it really emerges initially as a budgeting tool, mm -hmm. a way exactly. to deal with the life cycle costs of very expensive technology. Incorporating this into strategic thinking is, is done by people who potentially do not understand what the, you know, it, it's almost like I have a hammer. Okay, everything's a nail. Right. And while that is a cliche, and what oh, I'm a screwdriver for this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. But, or, or we may need a wrench. Yeah. Or more importantly, we may need people. We may need to talk. Our, our you know, a concept I talked about today in lecture mutual assured vulnerability. A recognition that, you know what, this is, as Dan and I both said, it, these technologies are of questionable utility or usefulness. Uh, and how is it that we then come to live with each other? Because during the Cold War, remember, the United States does not expect the Soviet Union to collapse. That may be a deep dream, but no one is anticipating it. I mean, we are just as surprised, the Bush administration, that is George Bush Sr., Herbert Walker, is quite surprised when the Berlin Wall comes down. And uh, they are also, you know, let's face it, the thing that ends the Soviet Union is not a nuclear weapon or anything like it. It is accounting. It is the fact that Gorbachev needs a loan and mm -hmm. that inability to be able to get that loan. The dollar, you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like the end of uh, King Kong where uh, Denim goes to the policeman. No, it was beauty that killed the beast. Well, you know what uh, killed Soviet Union? The American dollar. Uh, so that's a really, it, so we've invested in this technology. It has colonized, as I say, our imaginations and our lives. Mm. And at the same time, it proved to be a track. Look, it gives us jobs. It gives us, uh, you know, Dan and I have something to talk about. Mm. <laughs> but guess what? Can't really use it. I so to, to pull on the thread, um, talking about wargaming, mm -hmm. um, please, Dan, the, this technology, as you said, leads us down a path with our wargaming, where wargaming, which what at its simplest form, you know, think of chess and two different players with the same set of pieces go at it, whereas now it becomes this computer-driven modeling of like, well, the computer projects this, so therefore, has, has that concept, which started with nuclear weapons also kind of bled over, you think, writ large in our... Well, wargaming wasn't invented in the nuclear era, right. of course. And so I, I will tell you that wargaming as a methodology to study questions is useful in certain contexts. Sure. It's, it's, a, it's an yeah. excellent tool to do certain things, especially things like investigate nuclear war, because we haven't had any mm -hmm. to look at. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And yep. we all want to keep it that way. Even our adversaries want to keep it that way. So, you know, which is important. But so you have this methodology and it it is useful for certain things. Now it gets applied not just in the computer modeling world, but also in the, you know, they run games with hundreds of pe real people playing and lo lots of paper being passed back and forth. And um, if, you know, you can design a game to answer sort of any question you want to answer, or mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can design games to test certain technologies or forms of organization, for example, like you can test a new command and control structure if you want to see how well that works under stress. You can mm -hmm. do all these things. Um, and I think I already forgot what your actual question was about wargaming, but it's a useful has, 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 has it become more about modeling than about actual wargaming because of the nuclear weapon? Or war, or, or, or I think actually, forgive me for saying, uh, I think what you're trying to get Dan to address is to what extent is wargaming more or less realistic? in the yep. content that is how might it how might we read the game back onto the world mm. 
And I think that's uh, and I think that's a really important point because your own research has pointed out some really important things. Yes. I, so I, I used I looked at Cold War wargaming and crisis simulations, the ones that I could get a hold of that aren't classified or haven't been declassified yet. And, you know, I was asking my own research questions, but what you find is that the games, the big games that get that that are being run at with high level government participation, like secretary level and deputy secretary levels and, and experts across the fields, uh, adversary experts that are experts on the red team, you know, whoever the, the bad guys are, the games are pretty, they're, they're as realistic as we can make them, right? I mean, we, yeah. but, but there's a limit. It's, a, it's yeah. not reality. So you have, they're, they're, they can be mapped onto the real world, but the outcome of one game and, and players in the games have been quoted as saying this, this one game does not predict the future. It's one path the future can take. Now, one of the things that researchers are doing today is they're running the same game multiple times with different players. Mm. And then you can make a little bit more. Players have also called war games variously. They've called them simulated war experience, which anybody who's been to war might have something to say about that or object to that. But this is how this is looked at and used. And I don't think it's a bad thing as long as you recognize the limitations. And if you're, especially if you're using computer models Mm. to calculate, for example, the outcome of a conflict, you know, team A does this, team B does this, and you have the computer decide, you're only going to get what the computer programmers put in. You have to recognize those limitations, but the method itself hasn't gone. It didn't fall victim to reason losing its mind necessarily. It, for a while there, it did. We were, we were doing a lot of things that were just sort of these totally abstract number crunching war by algebra games. I think the field in general has definitely gone away from that and, and has recognized that's not the best way to do wargaming. And we have a great wargaming center here that does this, I think, very well. They run, they run games. They run series of games, which is awesome because it gives you more data to compare and contrast. And um, you know, if you want, we can. I know you have another question, but we can talk about specifically what I saw in nuclear wargaming through this period, if you want. But I'll, I'll yeah. wait. So, yeah. No, please. I'd like yeah. to hear that. So I, I'm just going to open. I want to make sure I get my numbers right. So I want to read the read the numbers here. But so in. One of the things I did as part of my research, but I went, I went and looked for all the war games I could find and crisis simulations I could find that tested nuclear strategies between nuclear powers. So mm-hmm. one of the both sides have nuclear weapons or are protected by a nuclear power like the United States does for its extended deterrent um, yeah. promises. And I found 41 cases of that fit this description. And I found many more, but they, but uh, you know, I, there were, there were lots of other games that did this, but the, the ones that really demonstrated escalation dynamics and what happens in a nuclear war, I found 41 cases that met all of my criteria. Mm-hmm. And out of those cases, only three have a successful war termination outcome once when nuclear weapons are, are used. Or, or how, do, when, how do you define success? So, well, success in this case is you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> so, the um, success is measured by does nuclear use help get to war termination or does it escalate? So, success mm-hmm. is it goes down towards war escalation or uh, termination, and mm-hmm. failure is it does anything else, right? Sure. If, if because yeah. that's what you would hope, right? I mean, mm-hmm. nuclear war is so destructive that if you use one or two. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to go more than one cycle because the, as soon as so we're talking like one small tactical nuke is used in one area, but then the rest of it doesn't go completely ICBM crazy. Yes, or it? or even a few, you know, limited, you know, what we'd call limited nuclear use. And the, the the general story is not just from the ones that I used specifically for my project, but from all the games is it is really difficult to keep the war from expanding when nuclear weapons are introduced. That's not the effect they have on the conflict. It, mm-hmm. You would hope it would. You, you And some of the theories would say, oh, this, this is going to demonstrate resolve and credibility, and it's going to scare the other side. That fear is going to come into play, and their interests are threatened. But you have this honor piece. You have this piece about reputation. You have this piece about precedent setting. You have these concerns about future vulnerability and future coercion. So nuclear use against another nuclear power is it, it's just, at least from the evidence we have, War games, crisis simulations, uh, mm. 
So it's he more, it's more of a force begets force. Pandora's box. It's as, not. As it's not good. And, and, and I, I've I've also interviewed senior leaders about this. I've looked at. Uh, I've done an experiment on this. It's very difficult to control nuclear escalation, even though the the leaders and the decision makers are aware of that and are trying to limit escalation. Mm. So there are games where you look and the entire purpose of the game, you have these two teams say, what we want you to do is terminate this conflict mm. as best you can. And your number one goal is don't go nuclear. Even those games go nuclear. So you have, it's really difficult. It's a day, it's play, it's literally playing with fire, literally. Uh, and that is part of what is supposed to make deterrence work, the fear of that. Right. And that's why nuclear weapons potentially have not been used, right. or maybe one reason why they have not been used. But these games, these war, well, you know, we, we talked about what can you learn from war games about this. You can learn that we still haven't figured out how to use these things mm. to coerce, to compel. Mm. Maybe we've got deterrence. That, that's that's more debatable because mm -hmm. deterrence is much harder to measure, right? You don't you don't know right. if deterrence right. worked or if the other side just didn't want to do mm. that thing or had decided on their own not to do that thing. So um, I think I've gone a little off track there, but the mm -hmm. but war, it, that's what you see in the in the, the available history is very very it, difficult. It, it strikes me as this conversation is not only relevant talking about the Cold War. This conversation is relevant today in talking about Taiwan or Ukraine. Because uh, you're in both instances, you're dealing with nuclear armed uh, belligerent. I come up with the briefing paper, but what do you do if he drops a? I mean, look, let us recognize it doesn't matter if it's tactical or strategic. Western leaders, the NATO alliance, and, and most importantly, the White House will have to make fundamental decisions. Mm. Um, is this the beginning of a larger Russian attack on the West? Should we engage, try to engage now in a, I mean, can I just say that the moment this happens, don't worry about your summer vacation plans. Because mm. um, I don't see how this ends well. So during the Cold War, uh, as, uh, who is it that talks about this? I think it's uh, Barack Katakan, the stability, instability yes. concept of, you know, they have nukes, we have nukes, we know they can destroy us, they know that we can destroy them, so nobody's going to use them. Whereas today, now things are more, it's almost like this, these third war, these, these you know, proxy, proxy conflicts where maybe the third party can get a, a, a big friend that does have nukes to, to help out. And we'll provide an, a nuclear umbrella, right? And so, but... That nuclear, I mean, it, you know, Dan mentioned a very important concept that of extended deterrence, which is in exchange for not building their own nuclear weapons, we have guaranteed many states protection so that they cannot be coerced. So, South Korea being the most famous, I think, right now, because they, South Korean, they prime minister or president who said, Oh, we're going to build a nuke. In which case, I noticed the State Department went, No, no, that's not going to happen. You signed the NPT, the Non Proliferation Treaty, you're not building a nuke. Um, we guarantee you our protection. But I will just say, uh, readers of the National Defense Strategy know that uh, National Defense Strategy is pretty blunt to the North Koreans. An attack on the United States would be met with the destruction of the D Democrat, you know, the DPRK. That's it. We just say it bluntly, okay? By whatever means necessary. Yeah, so something like um, there's no scenario in which he uses nuclear weapons that the regime survives. So yeah. that, we say it straight up. I mean, it's, I've never read anything like that. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. So, as we know, the one thing that Kim family likes is to remain in power. Right. He's got to drink a lot of Hennessy. And that may have been his dad. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of stunning to see it so blatant. And we are not now, by the way, how we destroy that regime, I don't know whether, I don't know if that means we use. I would just say something. This is something, Dan, and this is a really important point. Imagine the DPRK, or let alone even in the Cold War, a first strike on the United States by the Soviet Union, the so-called bolt from the blue, by the way, which we know that they never imagined doing now. Mm. That was not part of their war fighting strategy. Would have been met with uh, no American president was going to lay back and soak that one up. I mean, yes, we 
that would be met with the total the psyop would have been turned on and well, that was the whole point of failsafe right the bombers that you know are going right to but remember we don't do that later in the cold war looking glass i gather was always flying that is the mobile command the airborne command post but sac had a hard time keeping the bombers running all the time because they get old mm. i mean the very fact that we're flying those b-52s now yes they are like Theseus's ship uh, they have been rebuilt so much that you know their original pilots might not recognize their glass cockpits. Um, but I would just point out that you know that was the apocalypse. That's why I wish we, we had all you know, toy Planet of the Apes, um, among other things. And, if there were no nukes, it would have been no good movies in the uh in the late 60s, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> no, there were some really good ones. <laughs> no, but it does perhaps more curious though is the fact that. Despite all these post-apocalyptic films, welcome back. That was scary. Welcome back to part two of the yes, uh, that's strategy right. and policy podcast. Um, so nuclear nuclear weapons change all of the course. The friend, the first the, the number. Can of I say people. that? Wait, we go back a second. It's not that nuclear weapons change these things. Let us practice what we preach to our students. Nuclear, the use of their of such weapons would always be a political decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, nuclear weapons uh, can, in theory, only be fired under presidential authority. The president is an elected official. Um, while there is a significant amount of pre-delegation to the missileers and even to the boats, um, it's still national command authority must issue the order. So there, I mean, it is hard to discuss something that did not happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm happy it didn't, as I know both of you are as well. But so, but let us keep that in mind because I, nuclear weapons don't do these things. It is our decision to build this. It are uh, remember there is a significant debate. It is classified. It is very black, so to speak. A uh, debate about whether or not to build an H bomb. Okay, uh, Leo Szilard famously does not want the debate to be public because he's afraid of the American people finding out mm -hmm. because he's afraid they would just want to build it. Um, and uh, I would just keep this in mind because there is too much, I, I don't think it's going on here, but I would, one of the things in that book you mentioned, how reason almost lost its mind, is that the assumption that the technology might in a sense be autonomous or anything like that is is profound, and yet it is not. I mean, it's much like uh, the contemporary discussions about how artificial intelligence may or may not help strategic thinkers. Now, personally, I don't think that's a real issue. Um, it may help you play chess better. Uh, but, I mean, AI isn't coming to take, we may give it our jobs, but wherever there is artificial AI, people talk about AI, there is an immense amount of displaced human labor that we don't see. So for example, the thing that everyone is embroiled about now, ChatGPT. Yes, we can write a crappy essay, forgive me. Uh, and some are better than others. Can, can I clarify what I meant? I, so I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that, um, uh, what I'm saying is nuclear weapons come in and now what it does is in terms of changing the calculus in the bureaucracy, every service now wants yes. nuclear weapons. So the army has uh, artillery, yeah. nuclear weapons. And the, the Navy, the, the Navy has um, the, Polaris. You know, the Polaris and the Trident now. And then, of course, the Air Force has, has got the bombers. So every service then, now has to man, equip, and train and spend a huge portion of the budget on, on these systems that we're probably not going to use. Right. But uh, but they are, our colleague Omar Toprani, again, has written an excellent paper in which the revolt of the admirals, is, which we have generally thought of uh, heretofore as being about nuclear weapons, because the admirals said, oh, uh, strategic bombing of nuclear weapons was inhumane, that turned out to be false. The real problem for the admirals was that they did not have a nuclear mission. Mm. And by the way, we do teach a piece, Sam Huntington's Transoceanic Navy, which is in fact for this very case, in which he posits that the theory of the Navy is to use the inland seas around the Eurasian landmass, the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, and the uh, Sea of, I don't know what its appropriate name is, forgive me, God. Azov. The Sea of Japan, a type 
oh, as places from which you would use aircraft carriers to launch nuclear strikes against the uh, Eurasian right. landmass. And by the way, uh, the PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operating Plan, the, I think the last one we have in complete form is 62, calls for the utter destruction of the People's Republic of China and the USSR. The argument being, well, let's just get rid of both of them at one time. That way we won't have to do it later. Recognizing that we're not going to be here to do it later since, you know, it's going to be more like on the beach or, you know, heaven forbid, Mad Max. Mm. And uh, so... Those leather chaps always look painful. And um, so, but just keep that in mind because, yes, it's a cost. One way to view nuclear weapons in the framework of what we teach is they are a massive cost imposition strategy. That's, that's part of it. That's so, so let's shift to that since we're since you brought it up. So, we, for better or for worse, are able to still man, equip, and train for a, a nuclear. Uh, force as well as somewhat of a conventional force, mm -hmm. and then later on, and even in a counterinsurgency force. But we're able to to do this with our budget. It seems like this is one of the things that kind of breaks the Soviet economy. Is, is the... I think it certainly helps. I mean, the Soviet economy was not as stable or as strong as the or didn't develop as well as the U.S. economy. You know, it had potential, just like the U.S. economy coming out of World War II had. And we had to make good choices to make sure we could capitalize on our new position in the world and, right. and successfully extricate ourselves from Europe and Japan and make sure the economies worked and all that stuff, right? We had to do that well. And the Soviet Union also had to do that well. And I mean, the United States did it better than the Soviet Union. And and the, the idea, there's, there's kind of like a... a story out there that this is one of the you know the, the u.s used the nuclear competition as a way to break the soviet union i don't think the u.s was doing that on purpose at least initially i think they realized down the line Second that this is an effect. area where we are imposing costs like you said it's a cost imposition strategy on the adversary so anything you do that makes them spend more money in an area where you think them spending money doesn't hurt you on top of a weak economy, that's good for you because they're they're going to they'll eventually break. And so, mm -hmm. once they become aware of the weakness of the Soviet economy and the cost of the the, the nuclear enterprise, it becomes a good part of or it becomes a good thing to do as one more tool in the toolbox to wage this competition. Mm -hmm. I think it would be dangerous to take away the lesson that arms racing is a good way to win a competition with a country that has less money than you. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's the right lesson. To no, take. no, but it's, I think actually a more, uh, an important point, which is sort of implicit in what you just said, is our understanding of the Soviet Union was deficient. So we kept thinking their economy was much bigger than it actually was. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the things that Jim Schlesinger or James Schlesinger, the former sec uh, Secretary of Defense, when he comes into office, I think under... I, I forgive me. I, I don't recall under which president. I don't know if it's uh, it Carter. Yeah, Carter or Reagan, even. But one of the things he says, uh, one of the reasons he gets Andy Marshall to come up to the out of California and to Rand us found the office in that assessment. He says, "I don't believe it's as effective as you know. They're growing according to 13, 14 percent a year." And he says, "This is nonsense. How can they be doing that? We know how much they're spending on defense, and it is not that we are outspending them. I mean, it is that." The Soviet Union has no real trading partners with whom it is, you know, the, the whole point is the high tech industry we invest in and which the government funds for its foundation is a global industry. Now, for better or worse, we shipped a lot of the manufacturing overseas, which may not have been the best decision in retrospect, but it was certainly financially viable for many people or financially lucrative would be a better word. Uh, so that's one thing. What's this, where's the Soviet Union going to put its extra resources if it had them? I mean, it's supporting uh, states and, the, you know, as our colleague John Garifano, who could not be with us today, would point out that their support of the Warsaw Pact, that is Eastern Europe buff, buffer states, is an enormous drain on their economy. And as are their their competition I mean, actually, the irony is they're not competing with the United States anymore or the West. They're competing with the People's Republic of China to see who is a better communist. That right. ideological yeah. competition 
uh, is driving an immense amount of expenses. Each nation is working to cultivate third world allies. This was the point of our colleague, Professor Parazino's lecture this, in this case. And it is that competition, which is among many other things, helps wreck the USSR. It is a nice thing to say, oh, we're going to spend them to yeah. death with S the Strategic Defense Initiative, yeah. uh, you know, the so-called Star Wars fantasy. Mm. And I'm sure that played a role. It is, like all things, it is over-determined. The Soviet Union is going to collapse. It just is, this, it's it's like, you know, someone close to you when they die. You know that they are sick and that they might die but you will nonetheless be surprised when it happens mm. because it is, you know, like the famous quote about bankruptcy It happened slowly. And then all of a sudden, mm. and I think it's Hemingway who said that. And um, so just, I mean, one thing that you should take away from this case, at least for our students, regardless of who else listening to it is a profound sense of strategic humility. Mm -hmm. We didn't know it was the Soviet Union was going to collapse. We were not. Right. And in fact, this is one of the great failures of the international relations community has been dealing with the fact that no one in that community, very few, predicted this. And that's what they studied, right? The whole mm. field is, and this was a big blind spot. So this was a surprise. And I think that's, that your point is, is, is excellent, that this spending and these things we were doing it was over, the, the the Soviet economy collapse was probably overdetermined, but us spending on the United States spending on that's our choice nuclear forces was we were doing that because we believed we could gain strategic advantages from that militarily with our allies because we needed to invest in certain ways to make sure that other countries didn't get nuclear weapons. We needed to do all these things. We were doing that, and also, like you mentioned, we were doing it because we thought they could do it. We did at times believe they they could out do us in techno technology and missiles, especially the missile, right? The famous missile gap, right? There's always a gap of something and they make fun of this in Dr. Strangelove. Mindshaft uh, gap. But the mindshaft, the mind, yeah, the mindshaft gap. I mean, what, what a great line, right? In that movie, it's fantastic. Um, so yeah, I just don't want to overthink this, but outspending them in this one dimension was was the critical piece. It was an important thing, but. So it, it kind of, it kind of is like that, that game we sometimes play in the, the bucket game. I know we usually do it in uh, the Great Depression. No, no, but, I actually, but, I, I actually ask my students to play not so much the bucket game, but to do. This a, is where you have a certain amount of money. What buckets do you want to put? Yeah, in? do you? Yeah. So do you, you have a nuclear weapon stockpile? You have a conventional weapons thing. You have support to the third world. If you are, you know, either if you're the Soviet whatever Union, buckets you create, and then you say, yeah, put your money in the buckets. How much do you spend? Yeah. How much do you then invest and in, and in make the domestic work at home? And also, but just remember, I mean. First, governments and up households, so their budgets are very different. But more importantly is that the Cold War is, it, for those our Naval War College students, it has been four cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is a cumulative set of effects. Decisions that were made in the first week, whether it's NSC 68 or the X article, whichever you prefer, and then the subsequent revisions of these, especially as we fight two limited wars under a first under a quasi-nuclear umbrella, the second explicitly under a nuclear umbrella, mm. um, will have profound effects. Uh, by the way, does the United States win either of the wars it fights under a nuclear umbrella? No. We got an armistice in the first one in Korea, and we have to negotiate our exit, how should we yeah. say, from Vietnam. Yeah. The limited war under, you know, the traditional wisdom that our colleague Sally Payne would say, and Julian Corbett, whom she's following, would point out, maritime power gets to decide whether it's limited or not. Yeah, it sure did. Guess what? We had a hard time convincing the Vietnamese, though, that to accept our surrender. We actually had to bomb them to convince them. Linebacker, too, is bombing a nation to say, we say, uncle, just come to the table and sign the treaty, please. We know we have lost. We just want to leave. Let us and uh, nuclear uh, nuclear coercion certainly didn't help us in uh, in that context. But, I'm not sure it can work. I mean, does um, so shifting forward to and I want to pull to like pull this thread about not just nuke but technology in general mm -hmm. uh, and shifting into the what it means for the present day. Um, so Dan, you talked about you know technology the 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 concept of the third offset strategy, right? We have always used 
technology, not just nuclear weapons, but technology in general as our offset for saying, well, they have more foot soldiers yeah. and tanks and, and planes and artillery pieces, whatever. So does, does this uh, plague our military in, in a lot of, because the cost of a lot of these technologies, now we can only afford so many new subs, new bombers, whatever, right. and now it's getting, my own service is, is cutting <coughs> ground troops and artillery just so that we can have a few cyber warriors. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the right call. I don't want to go on record and say it's yeah. <laughs> whatever, but it seems like every service is now doing that. Is, is this, is this I, I would say, maybe perhaps an over-reliance upon technology yeah. to the detriment of actual strategic thinking and what is truly going to... So, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I have an opinion yet, or full, fully formed on whether we over rely or not. But I, I, it's a risk that I would always caution against, like you are bringing up that technology is not the answer, and this is particularly true with nuclear strategy and nuclear deterrence. I, I talk about this a lot. That there's no specific combination of capabilities mm. that will get us deterrence mm. because. What deterrence is about is about the perceptions and how the other side reacts to those things. Incredible. So, yeah, you if you don't know if you may have the most exquisite technologies in the world, but if that doesn't have if that is not perceived by the enemy in a way that makes them say, well, because they have those things, I'm going to behave myself, and that's not automatic. So, technology itself doesn't do deterrence, especially, but also it's not the answer. In other in other areas, and so we always want to be mindful of that. I I don't think it's wrong for the United States to play to its advantages, and we are the most advanced, richest country in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, to use money to trade for capabilities that help make you more secure is all very logical and makes sense. Sure, but if we over rely on that and forget that all of this boils down to which human beings where have power and when and who it's about people yeah. ultimately there are people who must make these decisions and do these things and live under these conditions mm. and so you can't rule that out ever mm. um, and so it's really for me for me anyway my, my it's just a, a strong caution to not over rely but i i don't think i study it enough to be able to say whether we do or do not over rely mm. and the one other thing i'll say on this is the united states has this reputation in some ways for being casualty averse I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because the United States throughout its history, when it is necessary to achieve the goal we want to achieve, we will take the casualties. And just one example of when we did the Normandy invasion, they deemed it was necessary for success to do this para parachute operation behind enemy lines where they knew that parachute was going team was going to be virtually wiped out. And the president goes and visits the unit and all that stuff. It's all stuff that happens that we recognize. Eisenhower. Uh, yeah, Eisenhower. yeah, Eisenhower, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eisenhower goes uh, and visits them, yeah. knowing that he's saying goodbye to 70%. They think it's going to be 70%. Yeah. We will do it when you need to do it. But why do it if you don't have to do it, mm -hmm. right? And Could I just uh, sort of, and I wish not to contradict that, but I would just say, I think I use a slide like this in the ILC. If you think technology is the answer, you neither, you neither understand technology and you certainly don't understand your question. Um, and I really think that is important. And machines, you know, Marx famously said, machines don't make history. Men and women make history. And they do so not necessarily under the conditions of their own choosing. That is, they have to live in time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got the deck you got. You got the hand you're dealt. Okay, we would like to have this sort of immaculate uh, technological conception, so to speak, in which these machines solve our problems. They will not. The lesson of our course, I mean, if we take the materials we teach seriously, and I think we should, um, it is that politics is what's driving war. Politics is what war is about. But so are the other aspects of our social order, economy. I mean, the great Keynesian insight is, after all, guess what? Government shapes the economy. It's not. There's no market out there that's separate from the state. Mm. Uh, the the very, you know, the, the Soviets were much more upfront about the constructed character of their economy, right? Central planning and the like. But they also discovered that it was very hard to 
if not impossible, to manage that. Now, we developed very elaborate ideological justifications for that, most importantly, Hayek's formulation that there's too much information, so there's no way individuals could manage an economy. But, you know, as I've said in front of the students, there are people who can imagine now, could central planning be possible with the, our digital infrastructure? Probably not. I mean, we saw what happened during the pandemic. We had runs on toilet paper and uh, paper towels, and we had a hard time making masks. Um, I'm not sure computers can or cannot fix that. I would just point out that one of the things, one of the themes of this course or one of the lessons one might take from it is that no matter how rich the source of information you possess, and let us be honest, we spent a fortune trying to understand the USSR. I mean, our, our, our intelligence community, this is the reason it exists, right? To see into a closed society. And so we have spy satellites, SIGINT, spies, you know, when we read everything, we hire, we have a massive intelligence community, which we taught Russian to just so they could study it, just as we're trying to raise up a group to teach Chinese to study that. No matter how well we try, we did not understand it. I don't think we understand the Chinese economy either. I suspect they don't understand us either. Okay, I think this mutual incomprehension uh, is a problem, right? So, and I, I would just keep in mind that this, yes, level of mutual incomprehension is probably a reason not to assume that you know what the other side is going to do, the mirror imaging problem that the Cold War is all about. Mm -hmm. We think... There's a lot of that. Uh, we think, oh, they're building this system. We should build one. Eh, actually, guess what? If they're building it, do we have to? Nah. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that to our advantage? I mean, I just remember vividly being told by a Pentagon guy, you know, they can make a submarine out of titanium. I went, well, that's great, you know, more power to them. Uh, and he goes, well, only, we can only make bicycles out of it. I said, I cannot afford a titanium bike, gentlemen. Um, but think about it. Did it matter that they had a titanium hold submarine? No. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, and this point about not knowing each other uh, accurately, that also comes into play in crisis of not uh, reading each other mm -hmm. accurately. So this is another thing you see in wargaming and the crisis simulating is that misperception of all kinds. I, I use that as a broad term, but it includes, you know, the, I didn't get it. I didn't hear it. I didn't understand it. I, whatever, ever form. This is highly likely in these high stress conflict environments when trust is out the window because you're already fighting. Right. Sure. So, so, yeah. so you can't count on, oh, they'll trust. They'll believe what I say. That's already failed. That Otherwise, you wouldn't be fighting. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about that. But this misperception and misunderstandings was a, a root factor in many of these war games that got out of control. Mm. One side was thought, and they would say in the debrief, we thought we were being as clear as possible that our intention was X, Y, Z. Right. And the other team says, absolutely no, not. We yeah. thought why, you know, ABC. Yeah. And it's all over the place. And to think that that's going to be less in a nuclear environment right. than it would be in others is, yeah. is wishful thinking, I think. So just... You know, not not understanding each other in the broad context, but also misunderstandings in a conflict and crisis is. is and, are, and I would just point out these are not STEM skills; these are very soft skills. These are linguistic, these are historical, these are cultural. I I, I must tell you that I don't need. It's not that engineers do not possess the skill set to solve these kinds of problems. But I think that many engineers recognize that these are not the problems for which they have been trained. And hence, the rec and just as, by the way, these are not problems necessarily for the military to solve. Sure. And, uh, and we know among our students and among our colleagues that there is a profound recognition that the military cannot solve all these problems, right. that we turn to them so often is a sign of our own weakness mm. and a failure of government to, I mean, the very fact that, you know, Mattis famously said, for every bullet I got to buy, you know, I got to buy more bullets when you don't hire enough diplomats. Mm -hmm. And you know what? There's a lot to be said for that. Right. You know, Botswana or whatever a nation in Central Africa may not seem to be important during the Cold War. They're all terribly important to us now because of the critical raw materials that are located sure. there. Guess who's there? China. Yeah. But we are not. 
Uh, the president is having or has had a recent set of meetings with African leaders, and I hope that it, we will have greater access to their raw materials. But that is a problem in politics. It right. is not a problem that yeah. you can solve. Those are those are excellent thoughts, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Been, Thank you. Been fascinating. Always learn something. And we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you. Very welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you.